0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Nobody who was around at the time is ever going to forget how the war began in the bright blue sky of Manhattan 20 years ago. Its end last month was tinged with the grainy greenwash of a night vision image. The picture, taken from the back of a cargo plane, shows a lone soldier stepping off a pitch-black runway onto the loading ramp. His silhouette is an avatar of American power made familiar over the past two decades. Outsized helmet, body armour, rifle in hand. The last American soldier to leave Afghanistan, Major General Chris Donahue, commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, had been coordinating the evacuation of Kabul Airport. Will American soldiers be deployed like this again? This is checks and balance. I'm John Prado, the Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today is American interventionism over. The attacks on September 11, 2001, were shocking and tectonic. But America's preeminent power remained undented. Retaliation was justified not just in the national interest, but in that of all humanity. Allies rallied round. Things feel different now. President Biden says the retreat from Kabul marks the end of an era. How has American power changed in the past two decades? And how will the president deploy it in the future? With me to discuss all of this are John Fasman, the U.S. digital editor, and Zanny Minton-Beddoes, our editor-in-chief. John, you were living in Brooklyn on 9-11, if I remember rightly.
2: That's right. I was living in Brooklyn, but working in Manhattan. And on the morning of September 11th, so a beautiful, clear fall day. I remember getting out of the subway station near my office and seeing a plane flying screamingly low Above me and thinking that was odd, I assume they're making an emergency landing back at Laguardia. And then shortly after I got to my office, the first plane hit the first tower, um, and then we know everything that happened after
1: that. And Zani, you were in D.C.
3: I was in D.C. Nine um, Eleven is um, evokes very mixed emotions for me because Nine Eleven was actually the day I got married uh, two years prior to the Nine Eleven. So uh, on on Nine Eleven. 2001 I was having a somewhat lazy morning and I was still at home in Washington DC when my sister call from London called me and said what is going on and explained that uh, you know just after the first plane had hit the tower and we rushed upstairs and watched the second one on television and it was it was the most as, as John says it was an absolutely glorious day in DC too and we I remember then trying to get to the office uh, and the streets were full of cars, the, you couldn't call anyone, the, the, the telephones were jammed, and it, was, um, it, it is absolutely vivid in my mind the, that first hour and, and the, the sense that a world had been shattered, and I, I'm, I had spent most of my adult life in America, but I wasn't an American, but it was that very clear sense of, of incomprehension, fear, uh, and a world having been fundamentally changed.
1: Well, we have 9 11. We have the Twin Towers on the cover in the US this week of the weekly edition of The Economist. And we've done that partly because it's the anniversary, obviously, but also because this feels like the end of an era in American foreign policy. So we're going to begin the show by going back to the beginning of that era, the moment just after 9 11. At the time, Joe Biden was chair of the powerful Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he had a front seat as America decided how to respond to the nine-eleven attacks. For this week's economist, James Bennett has been looking back on how Biden's views on the use of American power have evolved over those two decades.
4: You know, it's hard to conjure, it's hard to recall today the extraordinarily powerful sense of solidarity that was created in America in the immediate wake of 9-11. From the standpoint of today's America, which is so angry and so polarised and which we've seen Citizens attack their own capital. It is astonishing in a way to think back on those moments when legislators gathered on 9 11 on the steps of that same capital and impromptu they broke into the singing of God Bless America.
1: James, in the piece you've written this week, you weave speeches of Joe Biden throughout the timeline to illustrate how American foreign policy has changed in the past 20 years plus. How did 9-11 change his thinking and change the American foreign policy consensus?
4: Immediately after 9-11, he saw the possibilities of a whole new world in consequences of that attack. It wasn't just domestic solidarity that we were experiencing at the time. It was really global solidarity, you know, the expressions of compassion, concern Sympathy that came in from all over the world made a lot of American politicians think that there was an opportunity here to create a new global framework because, as Joe Biden was saying on September 12th, the whole world is now vulnerable to this same danger. What he saw at that time was what he called the civilized world coming together to confront barbarity. He imagined that a new relationship with the Chinese, a new relationship with Russia, the possibility that Iran would even move to some degree into the American sphere.
1: And, James, after 9 11, you had this confluence in Washington. You had the, on the right, the group around the neocons who were enthusiastic about using military power for regime change. And then on the left, you had a, different tradition that kind of ended up in the same place, it grew out of people worried about genocide and human rights abuses, optimistic that you could use American military power to improve societies and bring women's education. And then what happened over the next 20 years, really, as that project came unstuck, it became clear that it's extremely hard to build viable, peaceful democracies as an invading power. And so A lot of people over the past 20 years have gradually become disillusioned with that whole agenda. At what point did Joe Biden, do you think, lose faith in it?
4: You know, John, it's so interesting to look back at the 90s now. The Clinton administration kind of went back and forth on this question, you know, experience in Somalia at the outset of that administration made them very leery about using power. They then didn't use it in Rwanda to prevent a genocide when they could have. And that, I think, then informed their decision to use force in the Balkans. And Joe Biden was a huge supporter of that instance of liberal interventionism and regards it as one of his proudest moments in foreign policy, bombing to stop the slaughter of Bosnian Muslims. And so he was very drawn to the idea of liberal interventionism. But I think that the experience in Iraq is what really cooled their ardor for that approach.
1: I also thought it was really interesting in your piece when you went back to 1975 and looked at the evacuation of Saigon. Obviously, there have been lots of comparisons between that and the fall of Kabul more recently. And you look at what Joe Biden had to say at the time, and two things really stuck out. One was quite how hard-hearted he was about refugees, incredibly unwelcoming towards Vietnamese refugees, which I have to say surprised me. And the second was quite how confident He was that this didn't, this defeat in Vietnam didn't, in fact, mark a decline of American power.
4: Can I add a third surprise uh, to your list, John? And maybe this shouldn't be surprising in somebody who believes they can be president of the United States, but it is worth noting Joe Biden's extraordinary confidence in himself. You know, even at that age, he was what, 32 years old, the boy wonder of the Senate. And he's lecturing them on the history of America's sorry involvement in Asia, as he saw it, and telling them, as you say, that there's really no no reason to fear that this signals the fading of America or that we're withdrawing into a shell. And he turned out to be right about that. I mean, the Cold War would end 15 years later on America's terms. But he also was, yeah, quite hard hearted. He said at the time it wasn't in the American interest. There's no American obligation to evacuate even one South Vietnamese. And I do think that's something very true of Joe Biden. You know, he is ultimately very, very focused on what he sees as the national interest and and pretty unsentimental about the idea of America's obligation to the rest of the world.
1: Zani, as we mentioned already, you were in Washington DC in 2001 covering economics for The Economist. So you weren't writing about foreign policy, but you did have a front row seat for the neocon revolution and everything that followed. How was that seeing it up close? And also, how have your ideas about what America can and can't achieve with military force sort of changed over those past two decades informed by that experience in Iraq, Afghanistan, but also the experience of not acting in in Syria, for example.
3: So I think James put it very well in his excellent piece this week that I think the 9-11 did bring the sort of 1990s period where there was a kind of aimlessness to American foreign policy. There was no consensus on America's role in the world after the end of the Cold War. And it brought that to a very sudden end. There was a clear, unifying, powerful rationale, the war on terror then of course there was that the mission to crush al-Qaeda morphed into a desire for regime change and nation building and led to and I think this is one area I would perhaps emphasize more to a hubris not just in what America thought it could achieve but a hubris in the way it could behave to get there and I think the loss of credibility that the torture the Abu Ghraib all of those things in the early 2000s and the the sort of divisions that that created, but the sense in the rest of the world that something had actually gone very wrong with America's projection of force. That's one important thing to bear in mind. And as you say, then it morphed gradually as it became much more of a quagmire into a sense of why are we doing this in, in America itself? I am, you know, still of the view that liberal interventionism is not dead, and or rather if it is dead, I would lament it. I think America is a beacon of the free world, of the liberal world that that you know this newspaper stands for and that I would champion, and I I think that the world was well served by America's leadership of that in the post-war period. And if the lesson of the last twenty years is to a an extremely narrow sense of national self-interest, without the effective projection of leadership that sometimes need to include force. From America, I think the world is in in a worse place, and so sometimes I hear now, and you hear it from the Biden administration, and you you actually hear it quite a lot in in the U.S. that America went on a 20-year detour, and essentially that the entirety of the last 20 years was was a sort of terrible mistake. I I think that goes too far. There was clearly hubris, there was clearly excess, clearly, you know, Iraq and uh, particularly, but Afghanistan too, an awful lot went wrong. But I wouldn't throw all of that away, and I think a, an America that doesn't feel a sense of responsibility to lead, because frankly, it is the only liberal democracy that can lead. It's you know we all talk about the need for Europe to step up and so forth. I wish they would, but they're not going to, and so the world will be in a very much worse place if America draws too extreme a lessons from this. John, how
1: about you? Do you share Zani's concern that? the sort of consensus opinion in Washington may have overshot in the sense that for the past you know, three presidential elections or four, we've had presidents running on a platform to end the wars, you know, running on a platform that says that American foreign policy since 9-11 has been a failure and needs to change. And that the result of that might be America going back into its shell and, you know, being more reluctant to intervene militarily, or do you think that actually people have rightly learned the lessons of that era of of hubris, as, as Zani described it?
2: I also would lament a total loss of faith in liberal interventionism. For the reasons that Zanny outlined, I also see America as as a beacon and the leader of the liberal world. I think it's a crucial role to play, especially now. And I think you can't do it if you if you withdraw into your own borders and take a very narrow sort of parochial view of what national security interests are. But I also fear that that's what's going to happen. You know, I think James Bennett mentioned that the 1990s were a period of searching. And I think we're about to see that again, but with a very different context behind, right? In the early 90s, the question was, what should America's role be given that its power is virtually unlimited, right, that it came out of this 50-year-long Cold War victorious, the war ended on its own terms, its main geopolitical rival collapsed. And so the question was, how should America use its might? I can't remember who called it a hyperpower, but there was a sense that its powers were virtually unlimited, that it had this massive cultural footprint and this massive military, and it could do anything it wanted. What the last 20 years have shown is that it can't, in fact, do anything it wants, that there are limits to military power. But on the other hand, I think there always were limits to military power. And the question that America should ask now is, what should our role be, given the limits of the power we have just seen? But I worry that what's going to happen is that people will say, well, America can't do everything, so it shouldn't do anything. It should let the world
1: tend to itself while we tend to ourselves. Sani, one of the things that we say in our cover leader on American power and the future of American power in this week's issue is that the prevailing view that the war on terror was an unmitigated disaster actually misses some important successes out, that some of the counterterrorism aspects of it were actually pretty successful.
3: Yeah. In some ways, there clearly were successes i mean a nine eleven was not the beginning of a sustained wave of terrorist attacks on American soil. There are clearly, as we we wrote in a, a cover package uh, last week, there are jihadi and terrorist threats around the world it's not that terrorism has been defeated, but certainly, in terms of threats to the u s it, it was successful i 'm not even as you know, unmitigatingly down on, you know, successes that were achieved in elsewhere. I mean, if you look at Afghanistan, where, you know, it's just tragic what has happened, but there were actually successes in terms of the situation of women. There were tremendous you know, successes in building civil society, particularly in urban areas. So it's very tempting right now to sort of in a Manichean way to see everything in in black and white. But I don't think it was all a catastrophe. There was clearly overreach and hubris. And I understand why the administration wanted to end the forever wars. But for me, the saddest function of this moment right now is not that the war in Afghanistan has ended. It's the manner in which it was done. And it is the lack of consultation with allies and the very unilateral way in which the Biden administration stuck to a domestically focused timetable. And the reason that that saddens me is because President Biden has made a big deal of wanting a foreign policy that pivots to to China, which I completely agree with, which rebuilds global alliances, which it's sort of it's almost an incantation, which talks about the rules based multilateral system. Allies' faith in America's willingness to lead that system has been shaken by the way in which the withdrawal from Afghanistan occurred.
1: Okay, thank you both. We'll look back to the origins of the idea that America has not just a right, but a duty to intervene in other countries in a moment. First, though, the usual reminder if you're not an Economist subscriber, then you're missing out. It's easy to sign up. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash This week, we report on how New York changed for the better after 9-11 and the American Muslim success story. We also unpick the new abortion law in Texas and look at the chances of it being repealed. Economist.com slash is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. triggered military adventure on a scale not seen in a generation. But the idealism behind it originated years earlier, in the ruins of post-communist Yugoslavia. Samantha Power covered the war as a young journalist. The brutality she witnessed in Bosnia led her to build a career as the most articulate advocate of a new way of thinking about American power. She rejected claims that nothing could be done. President Clinton argued the roots of the Balkan Wars were too ancient and mysterious for outsiders to untangle. As he dithered, thousands died in massacres chronicled on cable news. Facing re-election in 1995, Clinton acted. Samantha Power cried with relief on hearing the news that NATO bombing would break the siege of Sarajevo.
5: In contrast to the claim that we didn't know, you have this streams of intelligence coming out from refugees who describe their own personal experiences, from journalists who are deployed.
1: In 2002, um, Power published A Problem from Hell, a history of America's passive response to atrocities in Rwanda and Yugoslavia. Power said America had a moral duty to interfere in the affairs of far-off countries.
5: And it is grounds, I believe, and I'll get to this in a second, to open up the toolbox and think about what tools you might employ in the face of warnings like this.
1: Genocide was now, an affront to America's most cherished values, and the U.S. must be prepared to risk the lives of its soldiers to end it, response. she argued.
5: What shocked me the most in looking at this issue was not that U.S. troops were not deployed. What shocked me was that the United States and its allies uh, were very, very reluctant even to do what you might call the little things. The book won a Pulitzer,
1: and brought Samantha Power to the attention of another rising star, Barack Obama. In Iraq, meanwhile, what what were euphemistically called facts on the ground, led Washington's foreign policy establishment to abandon the idea that America could remake the world. Power was undeterred. She once ran the Boston Marathon in a t-shirt commemorating the Srebrenica massacre. And her reputation as a long-distance do-gooder soon grew.
5: Representing the United States would be the privilege of a lifetime.
1: Obama's arrival in the White House gave power the chance to apply her activism in government. The president nominated her ambassador to the United Nations.
5: An effective UN depends on effective American leadership.
1: When the Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi threatened to crush a rebellion, power pushed for intervention. President Obama reluctantly agreed. But the resulting chaos led him to consider Libya his worst mistake.
5: We assess that although Assad used more chemical weapons on August 21 than he had before, he has barely put a dent in his enormous stockpile. And the international community has clearly not yet put a dent in his willingness to use them.
1: In 2013, a devastating chemical weapons attack in Damascus killed more than a 1,000 people. Faced with a clear breach of the red line he had drawn, Obama blinked. Instead of ordering reprisals against the Syrian regime, he asked Congress's permission first and didn't get it. The era of intervention was over. John Fasman, Samantha Power now, of course, runs USAID in the Biden administration, the aid arm of the federal government. If there were something like the Rwandan genocide going on now somewhere in the world, or if if such an event looked likely, do you think that the Biden administration would send troops to try and stop it? Or do you think that the rhetoric that Zanni's already described about forever wars, the general sense of fatigue, and the sense that it's just impossible to fix countries with force would prevent it from doing so?
2: I think that there is a would answer to that question and a should answer to that question, and they're different. I want to preface it by saying that the should answer is a hard one to hear, and it's a hard one for me to say as an American Jew who lost family members in genocides. But the would answer, I think, is no. I don't think the Biden administration has the stomach to start an overseas conflict right now, so I think that they certainly wouldn't do it. The should answer is that, sadly, it depends on where it's happening, right? We are witnessing what looks remarkably like a genocide in Xinjiang right now. Are we going to send troops into China to stop it? No. No. I mean, that the risks are too great. China is too big. Its military is too powerful to risk that sort of conflict. But if something like the Rwandan genocide were to happen again in a modestly sized country in Central Africa, I think we certainly should send troops in there to stop it. So, as I said, it's a cynical answer. It's a cynical truth. But I think that's where the calculus is.
1: Zani, do you think that's right? Do you think if something awful were going on, some humanitarian catastrophe that could possibly be prevented with arms, that the administration would run through a calculus that would say, okay, well, is this a problem that can be solved with a relatively modest deployment of troops? And can we then just get out? In which case, you know, let's do it. Or is this A much bigger problem where we'd need a large commitment of troops and we'd end up having to stay for another 10 years and so let's not you know do you think there'd be a sort of algorithm along those lines or do you think that the sense of fatigue and the sense that we just can't fix these sorts of problems is so um, prevailing at the moment that nothing would be done and we'd be back to that 1990s situation in the sense we would have come full circle when the Clinton administration didn't act in Rwanda and initially was pretty reluctant to get involved in Yugoslavia?
3: I think there would be a calculation, um, but I suspect that if it was genuinely a humanitarian crisis only, the answer would be pretty categorically no uh, American boots on the ground. Um, I think President Biden has all but ruled that out. But for me, the sort of lamentable fact is that it's not just that this administration is, is more cautious because of the fatigue with forever wars. It is that this administration really sees foreign policy as second order to domestic policy. Its focus, its attention is very much on rebuilding America. And there is a certain logic to that. The logic of the Biden administration is that you need a successful America to have a successful foreign policy. That, you know, it is focused on a foreign policy for the middle class. You hear it constantly from this administration. But the problem with that is The world doesn't wait for America to sort out its domestic challenges. There will be things coming up. But beyond that, it's not an administration that I think has, it talks a lot about global leadership and alliances and so forth, but I don't really think any of this is a priority. And I'll give you one concrete example. If global leadership really was a priority for this administration, then it surely would have done much more to be the global leader on a serious global vaccine response. And it hasn't been. It just hasn't. It talks the talk, but it doesn't do more than that. So to me, this is my administration has a big domestic agenda. That's what it's focused on. It really wants the rest of the world just to be quiet while it gets on with that.
1: Okay. thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to hear from Anne-Marie Slaughter, who helped run Obama's foreign policy. Okay, let's see if we can move on from the lamentation for a moment. I've been talking to Anne-Marie Slaughter. She was a senior aide to President Obama in the State Department, and she's written a new book called, appropriately enough, Renewal, in which she imagines how American power might change in the future.
0: I had no question about going into Afghanistan, both because of the attack we were defending ourselves, But also because of what I knew about the Taliban and what they had done to Afghan women, something any American woman who was at all interested in the world knew about. And so the idea of toppling that government uh, was both from a political or national security and, frankly, a humanitarian point of view, a good idea. Iraq was a very different thing. I actually did think that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction because my Democrat friends thought so.
1: You're not alone there.
0: Yeah. And though, again, going back to Kosovo and Rwanda and the debates of the 1990s, I thought it's possible that we'll find weapons of mass destruction and the Iraqis will greet us as liberators and we'll go back to the UN. And if that's the case, then as I wrote at the time, it's illegal, but it might still be legitimate, very much like Kosovo. None of that happened. And in both cases, it extended to a a project of remaking the country. And it's very hard, I think, for any of us looking back to see exactly when that moment occurred. But that moment is what the American people now think of. And of course, politically, it's been sold as we were remaking the nation. That was not the justification in either case originally, but it's what it became. And that is why that era is now ending.
1: Where do you think that leaves the US now in terms of contemplating future use of armed force. If something like Rwanda were to happen again, do you think that the experience of the long deployments in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the general sense of war fatigue in America would mean that a US government, whether Republican or Democratic, would be less likely to use armed force?
0: I now think we are entering an era of genuinely global threats. Global in the sense they affect every human being on the planet. Climate change is the most obvious, but pandemics, as we are still living through, absolutely the same, but also globalization, automation, (laughs) the politics of resentment, those are really global. And I do think this next era will not see the deployment of troops on the ground, except in quite unusual circumstances. I mean, yes, to evacuate, yes, in response to an immediate attack. But war itself is changing dramatically. It will be increasingly electronic. It will be automated. It is already drones and droids and cyber warfare. But I also think, and this is really how I do see the America, the future of American power. If we, if we can grasp it. The United States is becoming a plurality nation. By the 2040s, we will not have a white majority. By 2027, which is only six years away, Americans under 30, there will be a plurality nation. There will not be a white majority. You are just beginning to see how Americans who are Indian American or African American, either descended from enslaved peoples or Nigerian American or uh, Sierra Leonean American, they have a different understanding of the uses of U.S. power. Barack Obama did not think of the special relationship in the way that Franklin Roosevelt did. His father was Kenyan, and Kenya had a very different experience of British power. So I think that there's going to be a much broader American understanding of the historic uses of our power, and a a much more nuanced than assessment of what our security is and how to defend it. And ideally, we will see our ability to reflect and connect the world as our greatest asset.
1: Zani Anne-Marie there talked about the run-up to the Iraq war and her conviction that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction because her democratic friends, who were all really well-informed, thought that he did, and she supported the Iraq war partly for those reasons. I've been thinking quite a lot about that, listening to interviews with people involved at the time, and it sort of slightly scarred me uh, thinking about it, just because as a journalist, I mean, I wasn't a journalist at the time, but it's an extraordinary um, example of how an idea can become so mainstream that to challenge it is almost unthinkable, even when that idea is based on very little evidence. I mean, have you, do you have a similar sort of experience thinking, thinking back on it? I mean, now from this distance, it seems quite mad that almost all the sort of mainstream foreign policy thinkers, journalists, politicians were pretty much of the same view, at least in, in the Anglosphere. Of course, you know, France had a, had a different view. It seems like a kind of collective madness for you to, at this distance. Perhaps that's that's unfair.
3: I remember it very well. I, I was a journalist I mean I was writing about economics, but I remember the debates and the discussions in this newspaper's editorial meetings. And we, of course, supported the war on on those very same grounds. Um, I'm not sure I would go as far as to say it was a collective madness, but I think it was a a, a very clear example of the Establishment viewpoint, believing what intelligence dossiers, whether it was you know Tony Blair's speeches in the House of Commons, whether it was you know Colin Powell in in the U.S., and there was a sort of a standard view that was taken from that. And and you're right. I mean, there were people questioning it, and I, I actually I have very vivid memories of conversations with a few people in Washington trying to justify the Economist's position at that point, and they were clearly right, uh, and and we were wrong, but. It wasn't a collective madness, I don't think. I think it was a, a. It seemed a reasonable conclusion to draw on the basis of evidence that had been put together by organisations and intelligence agencies that that we were led to believe one should trust. That said, I think, uh, and Anne Marie made this point very well. Those justifications, which were based, we now know, on erroneous information—tragically, erroneous information—but nonetheless, those justifications were very different to the rationale that was then given for kind of staying in for the long haul. And um, I think what morphed was the recognition that this was going to be much harder than people realized. And then the the kind of military desire, the military's desire to to, to keep going and keep in. And and then sort of new justifications being sought for that. And I think this is something that is very front and center in, in President Biden's mind. And it's it's the blob, as it's known in the U.S., the foreign policy establishment. He is someone who has has railed against the blob, I think, because perhaps the blob has never taken him all as seriously as he feels they should have done. And he has, I think, some justification. But of course, and earlier in the show, I've been complaining about the manner of the U.S. withdrawal, I wish the president had listened more to the blob in terms of how difficult it would be to withdraw. But so I I think it's a it's it's too simple to say it was a sort of collective delusion. But yes, one of the many lessons we should draw from this is that it is really important for journalists, but not just for journalists, to consistently question conventional wisdom, received wisdom. That's, you know, that's our job. We clearly didn't do it well enough. Lots of people didn't do it well enough. And we should make sure that we keep trying to do that. So that's certainly one one important lesson I've taken from that. But c- can I just take 2 seconds to say something about Amory Slaughter's uh, I thought kind of admirably optimistic take on where she thinks US foreign policy is going in a pluralist US. And my goodness, I hope she's right. She has written for us a terrific piece laying out this vision of a plurality America's foreign policy. But in it she says that America is going to go from being king of the mountain to center of the web. It's going to be, you know, move from being policeman to problem solver. You know, I love the idea of that, but my goodness, I don't see any sense of that right now. So I, I think the, the kind of the imaginative leap we're going to have to take to see that kind of American leadership is almost as big as the imaginative leap that we took, you know, and erroneously took, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. I, I, I think that we need to be really sort of mustn't be starry eyed about where America is going now. And I do not see the ingredients right now for a kind of new, wonderful style of, you know, problem solving American leadership.
1: Is yes, her argument in the by invitation, or at least her hope, I think, rather than her argument, is that America will become, is becoming indeed, the first truly global nation where you have you know, large numbers of people from all over the world in the first big society that doesn't have a single ethnic majority. The demographers argue about exactly when that will happen, but she places it at some point in the 2040s. And that as a global nation, America will be sort of connected to everywhere in a way that no other country ever has been. And that will force it to become very present in global affairs rather than being withdrawn. And I think we, you know, we're all internationalists. So, so we hope that's the case. John, you've reviewed a book by Spencer Ackerman in this week's Economist in which he argues that the 9-11 wars and the hubris and the humbling of elites get you from that moment of unipolar, hyperpower, American greatness after 9-11, when all the world is on America's side and the country seems to have limitless power to remake the world, to Donald Trump. Can you trace that argument for us? And and how convincing do you find it?
2: I found it exceptionally convincing. The book is called Reign of Terror. I recommend it very highly... I mean not least because I went into it expecting not to be convinced, or at least expecting to find that it was a polemic in which facts were selectively marshalled in charge of an argument. That is not what Ackerman did, but that is what the first Bush administration did in preparing for the war in Iraq. And so at the risk of seeming in politic, I think it was not a collective madness that that gripped the sort of foreign policy elite It was a failure to reckon with the mendacity of an administration that cherry-picked intelligence for its own predetermined political ends. That fits into Ackerman's argument perfectly. Essentially, he says that the failure to win convincingly in Iraq and Afghanistan made the elite foreign policy consensus look threadbare and wrong, and that the xenophobia unleashed by September 11th, that is, the way that the sort of machinery of... The counterterrorism response was turned on Muslims, on lots of law-abiding Muslims, on millions of Muslims suspected of having no crime who were still surveilled, that those two things together are what produced Donald Trump. And his signature insight was that he figured out how to divorce the sort of jingoistic, civilizational, chest-pounding aspect of the war on terror from the actual policies. That is, you, can, you could be a sort of America firster and think that Muslims posed a civilizational threat and think that the answer to that threat was just to hunker down at home rather than to try to remake the world. That's Ackerman's argument. It's exceptionally well-supported. Um, it's, a, it's a bracing, maddening book. I recommend it very highly, especially if you think
1: in listening to me describe it that you're going to disagree with it. I think I should read the book because I think I do disagree with that thesis. I mean, it seems to me that the financial crisis plays quite a big part in the rise of Donald Trump, as does the backlash to demographic change in America. How about How about you, Zani?
3: I, I agree. I, I found myself my head shaking ever more as I heard uh, John's eloquent <laughs> description of that book, but uh, uh, he has convinced me that I need to read it.
1: Yeah, well, maybe maybe we should have a book club after this, Zani. I spent a bit of yesterday looking back at Economist covers on 9/11, and we obviously had several covers in the aftermath. And then I think we had one on the five-year anniversary, on the ten-year anniversary, on the fifteen-year anniversary, and now this week on the on the twenty-year anniversary. I think, as I mentioned already, we've partly gone that way because of this confluence of the withdrawal from Afghanistan with the 9/11 anniversary that just seems to mark the end of an era. But do you think we will? do this again, put this subject on the cover in five, ten years time? Or do you think we're turning a page
3: now? The honest answer is I don't know. But uh, I suspect we would not. um, Because I think the I mean, I can speak really only for for this week's decision, which was the one that that I took. And you put it very well, the reason to put it on the cover this week was in large part because it was very clearly seemed to be the end of an era bookended by the withdrawal from Kabul, um, and so it was not just remembering what had happened. It seemed that this summer, that era ended, and, and President Biden is is clearly trying to turn the chapter himself. Does that mean we will have covers in the future on, you know, liberal interventionism? Will we have covers on American power? Yes, plenty. Um, but and 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 who knows? Something may happen that will will warrant us looking back again at this anniversary. And it's certainly an anniversary. I shall never forget. But if you, if you asked me to put money on it, I'd think it was unlikely.
1: Okay, well, thank you both. Before I let you go, Zani, this is the moment you've been looking forward to. It's quiz time.
3: This is the moment that almost makes me say no to coming onto the show. It's utter humiliation every time.
1: <laughs> the Economist first covered Afghanistan in September 1844, relaying the mail recently arrived by boat from India. Rumor spoke of the conquest of Herat by the Persians, but nothing certain was known on the subject." Our report ran. Herat, an ancient centre of intellectual and artistic life, was seized by the Taliban last month. It's also the birthplace of Afghanistan's greatest footballer, Nadia Nadim. Nadim fled to Europe as a girl after her father was executed by the Taliban in 2000. She plays for the Danish national team and won the French League with Paris Saint-Germain last year. She now plays in the U.S. soccer league for which city, named after the last pre-revolutionary king of France. Louisville.
3: Louisville, yeah.
1: It is Louisville. I think Fasman got there just before, but yeah, I think, I think you're gonna. My mind
3: was slower. Sh- I was. Like,
1: <laughs> you're gonna. You can share the points. That's very good. It was indeed Louisville. Nadine plays for Sporting Louisville FC, which no doubt Idris supports as a native of Louisville. The highest-paid female footballer in the world is Carly Lloyd. The 39-year-old American pockets half a million dollars a year at NJ NY Gotham. By what multiple does the highest paid male player's salary exceed hers?
3: Too big a multiple.
1: Yeah, I would guess I would guess a 100.
3: I have no clue, but um, why, don't I say, why don't I say it won't be more than 100. Um, uh, 80.
1: Zanny, you, you get the points eighty-two times. Lionel Messi's new contract with Paris Saint-Germain gives him forty-one million dollars a year, including bonuses. So that's either points equal or Zanny, you've just shaded it. So there's no excuse for you now not to not to come back, having that's beaten right. Fasman on his home turf.
3: That was complete fluke. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks, Zanny. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at For a view from a close ally on the situation in Afghanistan, The Economist Asks podcast this week with Anne McElvoy features an in-depth interview with General Sunik Carter, the head of Britain's armed forces, about how to deal with the Taliban. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.